We are on the frequency 7230 kHz on the 41 meter band to Southern Africa and on 15255 kHz on the 19 meter band to Far West Africa. And I am Lulu Gabu driving the show with Anne Musa, Tabisoluhuku, and Figile Lingwati. Top stories in Africa rise and shine at this hour. UN expresses concern over security situation in South Sudan. African Union military experts meet in Rwanda and new techniques help farmers tackle climate change in Burkina Faso. In economics, French telecom giant Orange launches new money transfer service. And in sports news, Lesotho beat Kenya to reach Kasafa Cup quarterfinals. But first, the news with Anne Musa. Good morning. Amnesty International warns that Zimbabwe's upcoming general elections will take place amid the state's crackdown on human rights activists and opposition supporters. The London-based human rights group says in its report that there will be a systematic clampdown on free speech and the right to assemble. Violence in the run-up to the July 31st poll is reported to be lower than in previous election cycles. However, campaigners for a free vote are being jailed while their offices are raided by police and equipment confiscated. Zimbabwe's 2008 elections descended into widespread violence, largely targeting the opposition. 200 people were killed, thousands arrested and many tortured. Malian government officials have returned to the northern city of Kidal almost a week after the army re-established control over the strategic city. Colonel Mamri Kamara, the city's military chief, has issued a statement saying the officials, including the regional governor, returned to Kidal, which had been held by the Tuareg's rebels. The rebels had agreed to allow the army to enter the northern city in a peace deal that was signed between the two parties. The peace agreement was signed last month by Mali's territorial administration minister and representatives of two Tuareg movements in Ouagadougou, the capital of neighboring Burkina Faso. Opponents and supporters of Egypt's ousted President Mohamed Morsi have called for new demonstrations for the first Friday of the holy month of Ramadan. The Muslim Brotherhood has pledged to continue its peaceful resistance against the overthrow of Morsi. The group has called for separate demonstrations across the capital, Cairo, today. Rival groups have called for protests, including a mass iftar, the breaking of the Muslim fast, in Cairo's iconic Liberation Square. The Muslim Brotherhood says today's protests are against a bloody military coup. Meanwhile, UN Chief Ban Ki-moon is concerned about the detentions of political activists in Egypt. In a telephonic conversation with Egyptian Foreign Minister Mohamed Kamil Amir, Ban reiterated his support for the aspirations of the Egyptian people and called for a peaceful dialogue that includes all parts of Egypt's political spectrum to find a way forward. On Wednesday, Egypt's Prosecutor General ordered the arrest of 10 Muslim Brotherhood leaders, including Supreme Leader Mohammed Badi, on charges of inciting violence outside the Republican Guard headquarters in Cairo on Monday. South African President Jacob Zuma has lauded Nelson Mandela for the role he played in setting up 
the ANC's underground structures to fight against the apartheid regime. Zuma was speaking at a function to mark the 50th anniversary of the Lilies Leaf Farm arrests in Ravonia, north of Johannesburg. It's the site at which apartheid security forces arrested several top ANC leaders on July the 10th, 1963. It was at the farm that most prominent ANC leaders, including Madiba, sought shelter and attended private meetings. Zuma says the farm is a significant historical link to Mandela. It is at this very place where Madiba reported when he came back from abroad in 1962. We are encouraged that he is responding to treatment in hospital. He remains as much of a fighter now as he was 50 years ago when incidents such as the raid on this farm took place. In another positive development for South Africa, for South African women, former Cabinet Minister Geraldine Fraser Muliketi has been named Special Envoy on Gender for the African Development Bank. Her appointment follows that of former Deputy President Pumzilem Lambunguka as head of the Global Agency on Equality UN Women. Fraser Muliketi says she's excited about her new role that will be strategic in creating the space for women to lead on the continent. The most recent consultation in South Africa for the post-2015 agenda in at the end of February very clearly state that the lack of women's equality is essentially a governance failure. Now going to the African Development Bank, one takes that with one. Because when you look at cross-cutting areas in the bank, it's gender, it's dealing with the issue of fragile states, conflict, etc. And it's also looking at agriculture and food security. And that's the news for this hour. Africa, rise and shine. Africa, Zorza. Africa, Amuka na Unai. Thank you, Anne. In our top story, the authorities in the Republic of Sudan capital, Khartoum, have confirmed that dozens of people belonging to Nuba and Darfurian ethnic groups have been detained for questioning in connection with attacks on government military positions in North and South Kordofan states by rebels of the Sudan Revolutionary Forces. The detention has been confirmed by Yahani Henry, a specialist on South Sudan and Republic of the Sudan. Speaking to James Shimanyula from South Sudan capital, Juba, Yahani shed light on what happened before massive arrests in Khartoum. There was fighting in a town in North Kordofan and in South Kordofan, between rebels and government forces. The rebels actually took over a place called Abu Kershola, and then the government took it back. So after this fighting occurred, what we saw was a wave of retaliatory arrests in Khartoum. First, arrests of Nuba people, people from Nuba ethnicity, presumably because they were assumed to be supporting the rebels. The main faction of the rebels is the SPLA North, which is fighting the government in the Nuba Mountains right now in southern Kordofan. So that is why the government targeted people from Nuba descent. The second wave of arrest was targeting Darfuri students. Because Darfuri students were presumed to be supporting one of the Darfuri rebel groups. It's important to understand that all the rebel groups have now formed a coalition, so they all fight together in name under the umbrella 
of SRF, which is the, the coalition. What we're finding is that the government is making retaliatory arrests against groups of people who are presumed to be supporting various rebel factions within the coalition. Diane, you know very well, as well as I do, that um, President uh, Omar Hassan al-Bashir released uh, detainees or people that have been detained um, over the past few years. What sort of timing is that? Is it related to amnesty to them just because he wants to clear the jails or those who are not even connected with the rebel activities? He has released political prisoners earlier this year and he is basically referring to high-profile individuals who have been detained. But what he doesn't do is ensure that all of the, the lower-profile people, just the ordinary people, certain ethnicities, including the Darfuris, who are arrested by national security, basically for political reasons, they are also included in this, and that they are also arrested. But we've seen a couple of different waves of arrests following al-Bashir's statement of amnesty. So we know that his declaration of releasing prisoners is targeting some of the prisoners. Some were released, but not low-profile ones the ones who are basically just ordinary people. And those are the people we're concerned about now, that they're still detained. And the real problem here is that Sudan still has a very, very arcane national security apparatus, which allows national security agents to arrest people for very long periods of time without bringing charges. And we've said time and time again that this national security law needs to be revised. Can you describe the situation in uh, Khartoum, Republic of Sudan, as tense? And do you think rebels are really still a big threat to the government, especially in Kordofan and uh, Blue Nile? Well, the, the, the main fighting, the main insecurity in Sudan right now is still happening in the war zone. So southern Kordofan and Blue Nile, which is a ways away from Khartoum, huh? And then Darfur, which is in eastern Sudan. These three areas are the places where rebels have been fighting government forces. In the case of Darfur, it's been going for 10 years. In the case of Southern Kordofan and Blue Nile, it's been going for over two years. The conflict did come closer to Khartoum in April with the rebel offensive. However, there is no conflict in the immediate vicinity of Khartoum and Omdurman. And so when, when we talk about what is the situation, it's better characterized as one of political repression, where the Sudanese authorities are actively repressing any opponents and anybody who they presumed to be affiliated with rebel movements. But for now, the fighting is largely in the peripheries of Sudan, the marginalized areas where people come from various African ethnicities, and uh, the government has been actively fighting to maintain control over these areas for, for many years. That was Yahani Henry, a specialist on South Sudan and Republic of the Sudan, on the line talking to James Shimanyula. The UN Security Council has determined that the situation faced by South Sudan continues to constitute a threat to international peace and security in the region and extended by one year the mandate of the UN mission to that country. Just days after the country marked its second year anniversary since independence from Sudan, Council demanded that the government of South Sudan refrain from placing restrictions on the movement of peacekeepers in the country and 
shoulder its responsibility for the protection of civilians who continue to suffer at the hands of intercommunal violence and continued cross-border tensions with Sudan. Sherwin Bryce Peace reports. The draft resolution has been adopted unanimously. It was a unanimous decision. While condemning the lack of respect for human rights in South Sudan, Council also took issue with repeated incidents of cross-border violence with Sudan. U.S. Ambassador Rosemary Dicarlo is currently presiding over Council. Many Council members expressed continuing concerns about the humanitarian crisis in southern Kordofan and Blue Nile, where an estimated 700,000 civilians are in urgent need of humanitarian assistance and reiterated the importance of a cessation of hostilities and a political solution to the conflict. Fighting in those two states, which remain part of Sudan, but where many associate with the South, continues to blight efforts at easing tensions between the two neighbors. While a lack of progress on the question of Abiyé has seen calls for a September proposal by mediator former President Thabo Mbeki to be endorsed. Mbeki wants a referendum on Abiyé status to go ahead by October this year, one that would include the participation of the South Sudan-aligned Dinka tribe and all other permanent residents of Abiyé. Daikalo here, speaking in her national capacity. I'd like to underscore the importance of Sudan and South Sudan promptly implementing all of their bilateral agreements, and in particular on the final status of the Abiyé area. Uh, President Mbeki's September 21st proposal is a fair and pragmatic solution that protects the interests of all parties in Abiyé. And we call on the government of Sudan and the SBLM North to resume direct talks and ensure unhindered humanitarian access, a secession of hostilities, and a negotiated political settlement of the conflict in southern Kordofan and Blue Nile. Sudan has not embraced the AU-endorsed Mbeki proposal, insisting that Misseria nomads who travel through Abiyé also be allowed to vote in the referendum. Sherman Bryceby's at the United Nations, New York. Military and defense attaches from African Union headquarters in Addis Ababa currently on a five-day workshop in Rwanda say lack of good governance and responsibility have disposed the ongoing conflicts in parts of the continent. Their discussions dwell on the best ways to mitigate them. They represent 27 African countries at the AU under Military Attaches Association. Silvanus Karamera reports from Kigali. In this workshop, Rwanda has been used as a case study of how conflicts have devastated the continent, looking at what happened in Rwanda in 1994 during the genocide. Defense attaché in attendance included those who were in Rwanda at the time of genocide. Those like Brigadier General Vincent Nundwe from Malawi say they were reasons why they failed to stand for protection of civilians at a time. He says lack of good governance caused problems like those happening in some African countries. Yeah, I mean, I, I should be honest enough, most of problems which you find in Africa are a lack of governance. And in that governance, you're talking about the politics of inclusiveness. You're talking about the, uh, pro the government providing services for the people economically, or whether it's education, health, you know, unemployment, all those things are part of the, you know, the cocktail of uh, this, which can make uh, a country stable. Because of these factors, massacres and genocide like the one perpetrated in Rwanda in 1994 have been reported in the past. Brigadier General Vincent Nundwe was in Rwanda in 1994 and served under the UNAMIL, the United Nations Mission for Rwanda. This force 
still carry blames from Rwandans for its failure to protect innocent civilians before abandoning them in the hands of perpetrators. Most of these defense attaché have vast experience in international conflict management. Their convergence serves as a waking call for these officers not to sit aside at the time of needs, as was the case in Rwanda in 1994. Brigadier General Vincent Nundwe. Indeed, it was a sad chapter. I was also one of the ob observers. I was a major then. I was in Butare when the, the genocide started. I was in Butare, which is around the 133 kilometers from here. I, at least I had the gist of what happened before, after two weeks, we were evacuated to Nairobi, and then we came back where we used to, you know, escort uh, humanitarian organization, organizations to distribute food to IDPs within the country here. Their visit in a big number comes at a time when Rwanda sees stable economic growth. Basing on the Rwanda's case, they urge the international community to be able to predict and take measures before tragedy unfolded in a bid to protect innocent civilians. This is Brigadier General Anani Agwebe from Ghana, who also was in Rwanda during the genocide. The international community as a whole uh, should be able to see signs of such developments and do everything in its power to stop it. We shouldn't allow such a thing to ever happen to us and then start expressing regrets for what we should have done. It begins from now. We should be one community, one people, one common destiny. And I believe that if we make the necessary efforts, we will get there. The workshop that is underway at Rwanda Peace Academy in Musanze District in the northern province of Rwanda seeks to find resting solutions to conflicts in Africa with a special emphasis on the Great Lakes region. The officers, including 30 who represent their countries, at the African Union headquarters in Addis Ababa, Ethiopia. Silvanus Kalimera, Channel Africa News, Kigali. Civil society organizations and the regional center on small arms based in Nairobi are pressing for the ratification of the Kinshasa Convention on Small Arms. They claim that not less than 8,000 people have died in Africa in the past few years because of the proliferation of such arms and that armed conflicts cost Africa in about 18 billion U.S. dollars a year. Officials from the regional office on small arms in Kenya and some African civil society organizations are in Central Africa, which is a conflict zone, to ask seven of the 11 countries of the region that have not ratified the Kinshasa Convention on Small Arms to do so immediately. Moki Kinzaga reports from Cameroon. The Regional Center for Small Arms and Light Weapons in Nairobi, Kenya, believes that the persistence and the complication of wars in Africa are partially due to small arms proliferation. The International Action Network on Small Arms, Safer World, and Oxfam International reported that before 2010, armed conflicts in some African states, including Angola, Burundi, Central African Republic, Chad, Democratic Republic of Congo, Republic of Congo, Cote d'Ivoire, Djibouti, Eritrea, Ethiopia, Guinea-Bissau, Liberia, Nigeria, just to name but these, costed Africa a staggering 18 billion United States dollars every year. Dan Masano, 
from the Regional Center on Small Arms and Light Weapons in Nairobi says the proliferation of small arms is causing untold damage in the society. You've seen the Eastern DRC, weapons moving from Libya into the sub-Saharan part of the continent. You can see the wars. So it is something that we have to really get out of our way to fight. Is the loss of life not evident enough that small arms is causing trouble? That is why conventions, including the Central African Convention for the Control of Small Arms and Light Weapons, their ammunition, parts and components that can be used for their manufacture, repair and assembly, known as the Kinshasa Convention, was signed in Brazzaville, Congo, at the 35th Ministerial Meeting of the United Nations Standing Advisory Committee on Security Questions in Central Africa, it was signed by Angola, Cameroon, Chad, Democratic Republic of Congo, Equatorial Guinea, Gabon, the Central African Republic, the Republic of Congo, and Sao Tome and Principe. But some states are still reluctant over ratifying the convention. I asked Angela Wadeyua from Kenya what may have been responsible for the refusal to ratify the convention. Within the Central Africa region, we have Central Africa Republic, Gabon, Chad, and the Republic of Congo. They've also ratified. We now expect that Cameroon will ratify. I cannot really say why the rest of the countries have not ratified, but it takes some time before ratification can be achieved. Laws have to be enacted and they have to go through the National Assembly, Senate. So it's that process that's taking some time. But I think there's a commitment from countries within Central Africa to ratify. Besides insisting on the need for countries to ratify the convention, the civil society groups are also stressing the need for women to help by educating their wives to advise their husbands not to use such weapons. Angela Wadeyuwa and Justin Kwecha Kumche from Cameroon told me the rules women can play. The role that we've seen women play is as peacemakers, where they call upon their husbands, their sons to put down their guns and come together to live in harmony and to end conflict. Is it paying off? Where has it been successful? There's what we call the Karamoja region. That's the border region between Ethiopia, Sudan, Kenya and Uganda, where the Karamoja women have been encouraged to come out as, as peacemakers, so that instead of encouraging their men to go and fight. Uh, they've instead called on their men from the four border countries to sit down, discuss peace and uh, put down their arms and as a result we are seeing a lot of arms being uh, surrendered to the government and uh, we can say this region is becoming more and more peaceful because of the role of women. We work with traditional institutions to kind of bring in new power players within the fight to eliminate or combat violence against women with the use of guns. That's gun violence. We have constituted the Queens of Peace Initiative, which is a community-based network to promote community peace building. Without the women at the grassroots getting involved, they will continue to be the direct victims that they are already, because we know that when it comes to war and conflict, violent conflict with the use of arms, Women are the first victims. If six out of the 11 countries in Central Africa ratify the convention, Eugene Galim, who is a civil society leader, says 
it will go operational. It's a convention that was adopted by the 11 member states of uh, ECAS, the Economic Community of Central African States. And uh, once six countries ratifies this convention, it will go operational. We are in a good footing because Cameroon is in the process of rectifying. The proliferation of small arms generates a lot of money for manufacturers and traders. African people pay a heavy price due to lack of accountability or international regulations to address the abuses. Angela Wadeyuwa, however, says all is not lost yet. What we are doing is to call them to be responsible after you produce your arms. Make sure that the countries you are selling them to are not passing these arms to rebel groups and militias. It is estimated that some 8,000 people have perished in recent years as a result of the proliferation of small arms and light weapons. Reporting for Channel Africa, this is Moki Kinzaka in Yaoundé. Africa, rise and shine. Africa, Zorka. Africa, Amuka na Unai. Malala Yousafzai, the Pakistani schoolgirl shot in the head by the Taliban last year, will mark her 16th birthday by delivering a speech at the UN headquarters in New York today to call for leaders to guarantee the right free edu- the right to free education for children all over the world. The event marks Malala Day and has been organized by former British Prime Minister Gordon Brown, who is now the UN Special Envoy for Global Education. Alex King sat down with Gordon Brown ahead of the event and discussed Malala's crusade. She's a fragile girl because she was hurt very severely with injuries in Pakistan. And I've seen her health progress and restored to really good health. And I've never seen her give up on her crusade, which is her mission that every child should go to school. Her refusal to give up even when she's been intimidated, threatened and shot at. And her determination that the right that she now has, that she can go to school, is available to every girl in every part of the world, as well as every boy. So she's a most courageous and brave young girl. And I once wrote a book on courage and what made people courageous. And I found it was a strength of belief matched by a strength of willpower. And what Malala has is belief in her cause, which is that everyone should have opportunity and rights to education, but also this incredible willpower that even an attempted assassination has never taken away from her. Can you describe your first meeting with Malala? When did you first... I met Malala when she was in hospital, and I met her when she was recovering from her injuries. And therefore, I've seen the progress that she's made. She had very severe injuries, caused her to be in hospital for many months, caused her to undergo a huge amount of surgery. And I've seen her recover and regain her physical strength. But, you know, she's never lost this moral strength. It's always been at the core of everything that she talks about. And when you ask her what she wants for her birthday, she says, I want to build schools. And it's an amazing thing that a young girl who has been so badly hurt because she stood up for a girl's right to go to school is determined that she will use her life and what she calls a second life after what had happened to her when she was left for dead to actually help other girls particularly, but girls and boys, get the chance of education. It's been a year since you were named UN Education Envoy. Have you become more or less optimistic about reaching the goals of universal primary education since then? I, I, I think you've got to recognise that we're in 
a period where aid is being cut, where education progress had stalled some years ago, and where it's only by a huge drive and a huge turnaround that we can get the resources and the commitment that is necessary for us to meet that Millennium Development Goal. What you need is the willpower to deliver what is basically relatively cost-effective educational investments that will put the 57 million children to school. So I can see a plan where we could actually deliver this, but it demands that governments, both donor governments and developing country governments, and the international organizations be more coordinated in the way they approach this. And I would like to see that strategic view being something that, if you like, dominates the thinking of the United Nations General Assembly in September and the setting of the new Millennium Development Goals. What would you like to see come out of the Malala Day events at the UN? A determination that we will tell every government where children are not at school that they've got to do something about it quickly. And a determination never again to be complacent about millions of girls particularly who are denied the chance of education. And I think until Malala's case was known to the people of the world, there was an assumption that we had an inevitable progress that was happening towards universal education, and it was just a matter of time. There was no sense that girls were being discriminated against in the way they are now. And since Malala was shot, there's now been a focus on child labor, on child marriages, as well as on discrimination against girls, on child trafficking as well. And I think people are now more aware as a result of what happened to Malala that there are injustices that have got to be rectified quickly. So I hope that out of Malala Day, when people learn more about the injustices and the unfairnesses that are visited upon children, that we can see pressure on governments in every part of the world to do more to get children to school. It will only happen when parents and teachers and pupils and students themselves and governments come to the conclusion that the barrier to us getting every child to school is not actually in the end financial. The barrier is our lack of resolve and determination, as Malala will say herself tomorrow, to sort this out. And tomorrow Malala will be addressing a huge group of young people from yeah. all over the world. What would you say to young people today in terms of how they can take up this issue and promote education for their generation? I think what people will take out of tomorrow as young people is if we combine together if we put the case across the world, then what is essentially a civil rights struggle for education, for girls in particular, but for girls and boys, can win supporters in every country and every continent. And so the petitions will be followed by people pressing their own government and pressing the international organizations to do more. And I think what we'll see as a result is young people themselves, and I think this is the new development, young people themselves leading this struggle to get girls and boys the right finally for the first generation to become one where every child goes to school. That was Gordon Brown, UN Secretary General, Special Envoy for Global Education, talking to Alex King. We now cross over to Anne Musa for the morning's headlines. Opponents and supporters of Egypt's ousted President Mohamed Morsi call for new demonstrations for the first Friday of the holy month of Ramadan. Amnesty International warns that Zimbabwe's upcoming general elections will take place amid the state's crackdown on human rights activists and opposition supporters. And a new report by the UN Food and Agriculture Organization shows that instability in some countries leads to food insecurity. Details and more at the top of the hour.
Thank you, Anne. South African celebrities will be part of the South African Depression and Anxiety Group SADAG Nelson Mandela International Day Initiative taking place next Thursday on the 18th. These well-known personalities will all be in SADAG's offices helping the councillors in spreading messages of happiness, hope and inspiration. The SADAG councillors will be on standby for the calls to be transferred to them to assist the caller with their problems. Nelson Mandela Day calls for the people of the world to give 67 minutes of their time in changing the world. These South African celebrities will be lending their voices and their time for 67 minutes to the cause of making mental health matter. Actress Lillian Dube and musician Proverb are among the celebrities that will be spreading the message of hope. More from senior counsellor and trainer at SAD Fatima Sidat. This year we have in first time we have decided to join Iman Mandela Day. So we've invited celebrities to join in on that day to answer our telephone. So we've designated one telephone line so that celebrities can answer the phone, speak to you know general public and send messages of hope, happiness, and inspiration. Mandela's whole thing is to take action and inspire change. And you never know what messages go across and what change we would make for another person. What sort of messages will they be sending? You said messages of hope, but will they be answering general questions, you know, when people are phoning distressed, or will there be a specific scope of messages? What we're going to do is, because we've only designated one line to the celebrities, so they will specifically answer questions. If there needs to be counseling involved, we will have our counselors on standby, so celebrities would put through the phone call to a counselor so they can assist the person further. The celebrity, you know, not every day you can speak to a celebrity. So what we're trying to do is speak to a celebrity Celebrities will answer your questions and thereafter, you know, maybe give you some sort of inspirational message that they would maybe come up on their own. And I'll be there to help the celebrities in case they need any assistance or feel a bit overwhelmed. I'll be there to assist them. So we're hoping that, you know, everything will run smoothly and also the main objective of getting celebrities to SEDEC is to destigmatize mental health. When you see a celebrity associated with mental illness, it sort of tells you, you know, it's okay. You know, it's okay to have a mental illness. It's just, I can't get help and there is a help out there. Let me go and get the help needed. So maybe this will also help some people to contact Sherek so we can help them further. I see here actress Lillian Dube, Shadek Gilibeti, Roxy Berger are some of the celebrities that will be part of the day on Nelson Mandela Day. What sort of criteria did you use to select the celebrities that will be part of this Nelson Mandela Day initiative? You know, we had no selection criteria. We just contacted celebrities and, you know, celebrities that we worked with before as well and new celebrities, and they all were so willing to come and give some time to Sereg and help us out on this day. So there are so many celebrities that are willing to help us. We're so fortunate for that. And, you know, everyone's so enthusiastic to see what it's like to be at Sereg, because not 
often we open our offices to everyone because of the delicacy of what goes on in the telephonic counseling center itself. So for the first time, we're letting people in, and we're hoping that this will be an uh, opportunity to raise more awareness about mental illness. That was Fatima Sidat, Senior Counselor and Trainer at the South African Depression and Anxiety Group, on the line talking to Tutongo Beni. The South African government is to declare the Lilliesley Farm Centre of Memory in Ravonia, north of Johannesburg, a national heritage institution. This is the site in which several top ANC leaders were arrested by the apartheid security forces on the 10th of July in 1963. They included Walter Sisulu, Ahmed Kathrada, Andrew Langeni, Dennis Goldberg, Governor Mbegi and others. This week marks the 50th anniversary of the arrest of ANC and SACP's prominent leaders at Lily's Leaf Farm, which was used as a secret location to hold key debates on political and military strategies to fight against the apartheid regime. Tepo Ikaneng has more. On Thursday, the 10th July 1963, 19 most senior ANC and SACP leaders were arrested at the Lilisley Farm, privately owned by Arthur Goldridge. The arrest of these leaders, who were also members of the high command of the party's armed wing, Umkonto Esizwe, dealt a major blow to the anti-apartheid struggle. The incident culminated into the famous Rivonia Treason Trial, which took place in between 1963 and 1964. They were tried and sentenced to over 25 years in prison. In his address to a gala dinner to mark 50 years anniversary of the Lilisley farm arrest, President Zuma said the farm, which is now a major tourist attraction area, represents a turning point in the country's struggle for freedom and justice. The ideas born at Lilisley farm did not die at the point of the rate and should never die. We must ensure that the ideas and the spirit born at Lily's Leaf Farm continue to inspire and guide us in working for a better life for all. President Zuma used the occasion to announce that government has begun a process that will culminate in declaring Lily's Leaf Farm a national heritage institution. By preserving this heritage, we are contributing to the ongoing process of national healing and the building of a more united and cohesive society. Lily's Leaf is a place of hope. It must be a shrine to which we come for inspiration. May the ideas born at Lily's Leaf Farm live forever. It was at Lilisley Farm that the most prominent leaders of ANC sought shelter and attended private meetings. Some of these included Nelson Mandela, who hid in this farm for more than a year under the assumed name of David Mutsamai. At that time, he was involved in underground activities for the ANC and its arm to Mkonto Wesizwe. It is at this very place where Madiba reported when he came back from abroad in 1962, we are encouraged that he is responding to treatment in hospital. He remains as much of a fighter now as he was 50 years ago when incidents such as 
the raid on this farm took place. Amongst those who attended the gala event were surviving Rivonia trialists Ahmed Kathradam and Rumlangeni and Dennis Goldberg. in Johannesburg. I would like to encourage everyone to do something worthy for someone else on Mandela Day. We have all equally been awed by his dedication to others. He inspires people across the world and across the generations. You're an example to us all of perseverance, forgiveness, strength, wisdom and grace. Mandela Day reminds us that we all have a little bit of Mandela in ourselves. I will also be giving my 67 minutes. I would like to express my admiration about the great man, Nelson Mandela. Please, 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 on the 18th of July, let's stand together. Give 67 minutes of your time to do what you can. Take action. Inspire change. Farmers like Sibiri Kebre depend on rain-fed agriculture to earn a living and feed their families. But the weather patterns in Burkina Faso's Sahel region have become so unpredictable that the farmers do not know what to expect anymore. To help farmers adapt to these changing weather patterns, the International Fund for Agricultural Development, IFAD, has funded a number of projects that train farmers in soil and water retention techniques. UN Radio's Beng Publet Enriquez reports. Farmer Sibiri Cabre waited anxiously for seasonal rains to start. In the past, the rainy season began in June like clockwork. But now, Sibiri says global climate changes are making weather patterns far less predictable. <laughs> The weather is changing and we're worried. Every day we must think about how we will survive and what we can do. It affects our lives, it affects the environment, trees are disappearing, there are no forests and there's a loss of soil fertility. So it is a big problem. Like most people living in the northern part of Burkina Faso, Sibiri Kebre, his wife Zenabu, and their three children rely on rain-fed agriculture to grow food and earn a living. However, the erratic weather patterns presents a greater challenge for the farmers, according to John Weber from the World Agroforestry Center in Mali. Greater variability means that you might get 20-25% of the entire annual rainfall in one afternoon. So everything that you've planted is washed away. You have to replant again, but it's already too late because the growing season is only about four months long. And the plants, the millet, the sorghum, and the cereal crops typically take at least three months. The Sahel is an ecozone that stretches across northern Africa, creating a transition from the Sahara Desert in the north to the Sudanese savannas in the south. Soil fertility is extremely poor, and with just 300 to 500 millimeters of rainfall per year, even the slightest change in weather patterns can have huge impacts. Ten years ago, there was drought and serious famine. I had to sell everything I had, including my donkey cart, in order to buy food for the family. Since then, I have learned techniques that have helped improve soil fertility. 
The UN's International Fund for Agricultural Development, or IFAD, has funded a number of projects that train farmers in soil and water retention techniques. For example, half-moon-shaped pits are dug into sun-baked soil. When the rain comes, they hold moisture more effectively, and with manure added, soil fertility increases. Other techniques include digging circular planting pits called tassas, building stone walls that prevent water runoff, and planting more trees. Julian Lompo is coordinator of the Sustainable Rural Development Program with IFAD. He says more than 150,000 hectares of land have been recovered using these techniques, which are not only helping farmers adapt to climate change, but increase their harvests. La zone du... The central plateau zone had experienced a drop in production. On average, the harvest was 300 or 400 kilograms per hectare, or in the best situation, 600 kilograms. Today, with this technique's production, has been raised to 1.4 and 1.5 kilograms per hectare. So you see the difference. It's more than doubled. In this part of the Sahel, scientists predict Rainfall will continue to decrease to around 310 millimeters per year from an already low average of 500 millimeters. Weather patterns are continuing to change, and as they do, farmers must continue to find new ways to adapt if they are to have any hope of surviving over the long term. Beng Poblete Enriquez, United Nations. We now cross over to Tabiso Luhuku for our economics update. The African Development Bank encourages North African countries to find ways of building resilience against the crises that could threaten economic and social stability. In its 2013 annual report on North Africa, the bank stresses the need to focus on inclusive development in order to tackle the long-standing socio-economic problems that have destabilized the region in recent years. The report introduces a new and innovative resilience framework to gauge the impact of the recent crises on North African countries. It says that the new fund finding will critically assess government interventions aimed at minimizing their effects and identifying options for policymakers. The French multinational telecommunications corporation Orange is launching a quick and easy international money transfer service at a competitive price called Orange Money International Transfer. The offer is available between Mali, Senegal and Côte d'Ivoire. With the new service, Orange meets the needs of the growing number of Orange Money customers. Orange Money International Transfer allows money to be sent and received from one's mobile phone with complete security. Users no longer need to have cash with them when they travel, and sending cash doesn't have to be done by a third party. African business leader and philanthropist Tony Amelu will join Nigerian President Goodluck Jonathan as part of a high-powered delegation accompanying the Nigerian leader on a state visit to China. The visit, which will include a meeting with China's President Jinping, will see 
the leaders address a business delegation. Jonathan says Nigeria's economy is suitable for private sector involvement. He says the country offers the best incentives and have put the right structures in place to reduce the cost of entry into Nigeria. Nigeria's, rather, Jonathan's, yes, state will visit will mark the start of a private sector-driven approach to China-Africa bilateral relations. South African Airways Management says it hopes that the workers will accept their revised wage offer of 6.5%. Workers are demanding 7.5%. The strike action intended for yesterday has been averted for now after the new offer, SAA spokesperson Tladitladi. There was willingness on the part of the uh, unions to take back, back that revised offer to their constituencies where we expect that uh, they will obtain a fresh mandate and come back to us so that we find out whether the revised offer is acceptable to them or not. So, in other words, essentially the strike has been suspended up until we know when we get feedback from the unions as to whether it has been permanently abandoned or they intend to go back on strike or to start striking as of of tomorrow. The U.S. dollar trades at 9.93 South African rand. 66 British pounds, 76 euro. One US dollar is worth 8.43 Botswana pulas, 5.40 Zambian kwachas. Platinum, $1,406. And gold, $1,282 an ounce. Brand to crude, $108.10 a barrel. Economics update. Thank you, Tabiso. We now cross over to Figile Lingwati for our sporting update. Sports update this hour. Lesotho national football team edged rivals Botswana on goal difference to take top place in Group B as they turned the Kosafa Cup on its head at the end of the group phase. A 2-0 win for Lesotho over Swaziland in Zambia's capital Lusaka was enough for them to finish at the helm and book a Sunday meeting with Angola in the quarterfinals. Botswana is eliminated despite beating Kenya 2-1 in Kitwe at the same time. Lesotho and Botswana both finished on five points, but Lesotho ended with a plus two goal difference to plus one for the Zebras. And the South African Premiership side, Orlando Pirates coach Roger Rissar is confident that he will have a competitive side in the African Champions League group stages. That's a campaign that gets underway next weekend when they host Congolese side AC Leopards at Orlando Stadium in Johannesburg. He was speaking after their training match against Amateurs in Pretoria that finished goalless after three halves of 45 minutes. Pirates have lost Munib Josephs, Benny McCarthy, Onyikanche Okonko and Tekshon Chinyama, but Desai is still positive about their chances in the Champions League. 
We are going to be stretched. You know, it's, it's very difficult because of the way our season is run. But uh, at least we've got Roy Mahamutsa back. You know, you've got Tabo Matlaba back from injury. So those two, you know, we've got two extra defenders coming in. So that, that's a great help. And then there's many others. Andile Jali comes back from injury as well. So that's good to have. Uh, and obviously Lennox is a, is a good inclusion. And there's obviously one or two others that we've got to, you know, we know they're coming back um, and they'll help us, you know. So, you know, we, we're better now than what we were when the season ended. There's no doubt about it. It's going to be a question of, you know, can we hold out? Pirates who finished third in last season's APSA Premiership and trophyless after two consecutive seasons of treble successes returned for pre-season training on the 18th of last month. Disa believes that his team is in good shape for next week's crunch encounter against Leopards. We had to start earlier, uh, firstly, and then we had to prepare our team, you know, probably two weeks earlier than everybody else. So, yeah, it's been difficult, obviously, but, uh, yeah, so far so good. We've had a couple of runs already. Today was very good for us against Tux, um, you know, to come up against another PSL side, and uh, the, com- the competition was a lot tougher. And uh, to come away from home and, and play a game was always important. And uh, we'll conclude our preparations on, on Sunday by going to Lesotho uh, and play a competitive game against an African team. So after that, we'll just have to, you know, touch up here and there and, and make sure we're ready for leopards. In cricket news, Australia's national cricket team new teenage sensation Ashton Aga says he enjoyed the best day of his young life so far after his record-breaking 98-10, the first Ashes test against England upside down. Australia were in dire straits at 117 for 9 in reply to England's first innings 215 when 19-year-old Western Australia left arm spinner Aga making his test debut walked out to bat. Together with Phil Hughes, who was an 81 not out, he also shared a test record last week at stand of 163 that took Australia to 280 all out and a 65-run first innings lead. And in golf news, John Perry leads into the second round of the Aberdeen Asset Management Scottish Open at Castle Stewart. The Englishman's 8 under par after an opening 64 to be one clear of the field after a host of low scores. Nick Dye reports. Parry is a former winner of the Vivendi Trophy who's been on the way back since qualifying for the US Open and having a good performance at Merion. There's a greater confidence and he's relishing playing a Lynx course like he enjoyed in his amateur career. The former PGA champion Simon Carnes a stroke adrift, while Phil Mickelson's an ominous presence on six under par having got off to one of his best starts in 11 visits to this event. 22 players have shot a 67 or better in lovely sunshine, though afternoon winds certainly pose problems not present in the morning. One of the pre-event favourites, Ernie Ells, found that to his cost, labouring to level par and knowing a low round is now needed to make the weekend. Finally, German cyclist Marcel Kittel's latest Tour de France stage win yesterday made it yet another day to remember for German cycling at the time when the sport needs all the help it can to get to restore its image in the country. Kettle edged out British sprinter star Mark Cavendish by half a wheel on the line at the end of the stage 12 in Tours to record his third stage win on what is just his second tour, de France. A 25-year-old previously won the crash mud opening stage in Basquiat and then pipped compatriot Andre Grapel on the line to win stage 10 in St. Malo on Tuesday. With Grapel winning stage 6 in Montpellier, and Tony Martin underlining his time-trailing superiority with his victory at Mont Saint-Michel on Wednesday, Germany now has five stage wins altogether on this year's tour, while the hosts have yet to record any. And that's your Sport News this hour.
Africa, rise and shine. Africa, Zorna. Africa, Amuka na Unai. Recapping our top stories on Africa Rise and Shine at this hour, UN expresses concern over security situation in South Sudan. African Union military experts meet in Rwanda and new techniques help farmers tackle climate change in Burkina Faso. That wraps up Africa Rise and Shine today. From myself, Lulu Gabu, producer Pumuzo Ramagaza, technical producer Mario Edwards and the rest of the team, thank you for joining us. For comments about our show, send us an email at infochannelafrica.org or write to or send us an SMS to plus 2782 Taking us to the top of the hour for the news is Lady Smith Black Mambazo with Homeless. Somebody's in.